0: Um, One of our members of our church who comes to the Wednesday Bible Study, which you're all welcome to join, uh, said a few weeks ago, we're doing 2 Samuel, great, when do we get to the good stuff? And I was like, what do you mean the good stuff? You know, David and Bathsheba. And so this past Wednesday, we said, it's the good stuff. Oh boy, if you ever thought Bible was boring, I I hope you read at least First and Second Samuel, it, it is better than anything on HBO or Netflix. I mean, it, it, this is the good stuff. And um, as I get started with this, somebody once told me a successful Christian parenting is, is defined as this. Successful Christian parenting is when you raise your children in a way where they transfer their trust of you into, fully into Jesus Christ. When they've transferred their full trust and security in you and transfer it completely in Jesus Christ and they're living their life, that is successful Christian parenting. Because if you think about it, from that point, everything else falls into place. From who they find, how they live, what they do. You don't have to lecture them. You don't have to call, are you going to church? Are you reading the Bible? Because when they transfer their trust fully, confidently from you to Jesus Christ, there is a default love and devotion so my parents don't call me to say are you praying and going to church they raised me in that way and i'm so glad even though they made me go to church whether i had a fever or not but this is the one of the basis of what christian parenting is why do i share that there's another hidden secret for that is because parents mentors pastors and leaders we are susceptible to sin we will fail and let them down but Jesus will not. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we've been going through how King Saul rose and fell and how David just was a righteous man after God's own heart. And David grew. He loved the Lord. And lest we make the mistake of David is our hero, I think God put chapter 11 on. David is not to be worshipped. There is only one that you keep your gaze and fixate your eyes on. Hebrews 12.2 says, it is the author and perfecter of our faith, and his name is Jesus Christ. So you see, parenting seminar here, where are we building up moral models for children to follow, or were we pointing them to Jesus, the one they should follow? And so, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David falls, and he's going to fall hard. And some people say, is this a complete fall, Or is this a serious fall? And they say, this is a serious fall. Saul had a complete fall and was rejected. David was not. And so we also see in here that every success in your life and my life is by the grace of God. Every success you've had in your life and in my life and in people around us is purely by the grace of God. In other words, it can be taken away just like that. Isn't it true? Uh, one of our VBS activities that Bill Huckerson he leads a one station in VBS and he plays this game every year, and he sets up cones, and he tells the kids, you know, split up in two, and one team knocks down all the cones, the other team is to set up all the cones, and by the end of the game, depending on how many cones are standing up and how many cones are sitting down, the team wins. So they go go, and of the time, which team wins? The team that knocks down the cones always wins because it's easier to knock down than to set up. And in our spiritual life, it's always easier to go the easy way of leading a life that knocks our relationship, our whole life and family down. But it takes focus, humility, and the grace of God to live in a way that keeps building up. And so, I want to jump into David and say, this spiritual life that we've been given, there's a lot of words of caution, there's a practical relationship model here, and there is a redeeming hope, and we'll focus a lot of that on next week. But today, I want to jump right in. How did it happen, and what happened? What happened, David? So, three factors in today's story where David fell and committed adultery with this married woman named Bathsheba. First, David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Stop. Good. That's what God ordered them to do. Hey, take down, reclaim, and build up your kingdom. But the next line is peculiar. But David remained at Jerusalem, but David remained at Jerusalem. Here's the first principle, and how did David end up here? David was not where he was supposed to be. David was not where he was supposed to be. They're in the middle of war, and David remains behind. And if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Israel was saying, we want a king just like every other country, Israelites even said this, and I think I might have the verse. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, and we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the design and intent was when there's a battle, who goes out there with you? The king. And David has won every battle that God's placed him in. And for some reason, in the time when kings go off to war in spring, David decides to stay home. Why was he home? No one agrees to this. They speculate maybe he was just tired. No one clearly knows maybe he was just too comfortable. Hey, we've been winning everything. Hey, God's going to win this one too. Or maybe he was just, 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 I just need a break. Either way, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And David was known to be this God-fearing and humble man, but here we see something else. David wasn't where he was supposed to be spiritually. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve are living their life, and God says, you could have anything, but you cannot touch, Uh, you cannot, don't eat from this tree. And then, so Adam and Eve, they sinned, the serpent, you know, seduce him and then they, they ate, and Adam ate, and, and at the end, there's a moment when God confronts them, and do you remember the question God asks Adam as he's walking in the garden after, just after they sinned? What is the question God asks? Where are you? Where are you? He wasn't asking for a geographic location, because God knows everything. What a weird question. I've always said, if you want to lose at hide and seek, play with God. You can't hide from God. And God asks, where are you? Why would he ask that? He is not asking for a geographic location. He's saying spiritually, "What, what happened? Where are you? David is spiritually not where he's supposed to be as well as geographically. In fact, I looked up secular articles and resources for this, but one of the reasons why people commit adultery and fall into temptation is, is, is fascinating. Let me read you one article. Celebrities and big politicians can have an inflated sense of control over their lives and feelings of invincibility. One PGA golfer has an incredible sense of control in every aspect of his life. So why shouldn't he be able to control who knows about his personal life and the reactions people have? Listen to this. For instance. Narcissists or those who are completely self-absorbed, relatively arrogant, and have less empathy are more likely to stray from spouses for a fling. In other words, where are you? I am me. When I think of my life as I am the center of the universe, it's all about me, you exist in my place, and I'm not where God wants me to be a servant before him. The secular article is saying this opens up the can of worms for temptation and adultery. Let me read another one from Huffington Post, which is very secular. Overconfident people have an inappropriate sense of security, and this increases the probability of engaging in counterproductive and risky behavior. For example, one of the reasons why most people decide not to pursue extramarital affairs is that they are afraid of being caught. The main reason why some people do pursue them is that they feel confident of not getting caught. This sense of invincibility makes infidelity extremely prominent among powerful people. Exceptional achievers who claim that extraordinary confidence is a secret of their success are more often its victims. So could it be that David was living a faithful life, but for this moment he said, Man, I'm doing well. God's on my side you know what, I don't need to fight this war for now. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good king. And what creeps in is this overconfidence that gives him this license to say, hey, maybe I could try doing whatever I want. So the question here is, for the church and for us in this room, Christians or not Christian, is where are you? Are you where you're supposed to be in your life, in your daily schedules? Where are you? In relative to God? Do you live as if God no longer exists or is not in your sphere? Or do you live as if you could keep secrets kept from God? Where are you? And it just blows my mind that they still don't know, but I wonder, how could David have done such a crazy thing? Could it be that he was overconfident in himself and forgot his confidence in God? So maybe summary of this is success Open the door for david's temptation so david was not where he was supposed to be um second samuel chapter 11 let's keep going then it happened late one afternoon when david arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful a couple of people remember just picture this is daytime i don't think we see or hear of women outside in daytime bathing under a big tower where the king could see so some people speculate oh Bathsheba's trying to seduce the king but after many studies it's indicative this is david's issue not her and then david walks out and he sees this woman bathing and right there wives and husbands this is a good conversation point what would you do this is a good question what would you do you see a woman bathing outside, what would you do? At this moment, don't you wish David said, and David walked back into the chambers of his room and prayed before God and said, I am grateful for the wife that you've given me, or the wives, I already have nine, eight. And God, Dave, you know, God you've been blessing me. Let my heart be true to you. Don't you wish that's what happened? Don't you wish all the mistakes of our lives, we could go back and say, that was the moment. I wish I could turn around and so as a side those moments will keep coming and in those crucial moments what would you do bring the Lord into it and say God what would honor you let's keep going verse 3 and David sent and inquired about the woman what does he do I want to know more (laughs) who is that girl I went to a marriage counseling with my wife for, at Mariner's Church for like uh, married couples, like class, marriage class. And one of the statements they said, hey, there's temptation all around. this beautiful women, beautiful men. You know, you look like, okay. It's always that second look when you go back that you got to watch out for. And allegedly Billy Graham said this, so don't quote me on it, but allegedly, legendarily Billy Graham was walking at the beach of a beautiful city. And then his men, you know, Billy Graham is just, just, he is resilient with temptation. He never goes to a room room alone with a woman. But there was this beautiful woman in a bikini walking by, and and allegedly all his men beside him were going, I wonder how Billy's going to react to that. And apparently, he said, God did a really good job with her. That's, (laughs) that's what, so I don't know if it's true, but that in itself is not temptation yet. That's, that's hey there's beautiful people it's that second look and so david saw what did he do the second look of i want to know her tell me her name who is this and david sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of eliam the wife of uriah the hittite verse four another moment what do you do with that information You take that piece of paper and you burn it and say, what am I thinking? Another critical moment. What would you do? Verse 4, so David sent messengers and he took her. She came to him and he lay with her. He broke two crucial boundaries. One is, why would you inquire of something that is a potential lust? Why would you play with fire? Who is this woman? To be tempted is not sin. To give in to temptation is the beginning of a devastation for a lot of things. But here's a fascinating, salty sting. Verse 3. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Do you know who Uriah the Hittite was? In chapter 22 or 23, he is listed as one of David's most faithful, loyal Top 30 elite soldiers he is the best, he is the Navy SEal, the Marines, the Delta force of david 's army. David, knowing this, calls for her. I mean, that makes it even worse. David, it's one of your own men's wife, so he violates coveting now. And so knowing that this woman belongs to a married man. He takes her. And verse 2, well, the second thing is he takes her, he brings her, and he sleeps with her. I like to say he blew through the guardrails and boundaries with an explosion. Each of us have guardrails. You know the guardrails. Guardrails keep you in check, you know, when you fall asleep on the road or doesn't, it damages you, but it doesn't let you die. Each of you have guardrails. You, you don't you're, you don't hang out until 3 in the morning at a bar. You don't, you don't go to trips without telling your wife. You don't, you know, or, so all of us have guardrails. You don't let your kids have unlimited access to the Internet and YouTube. Hey, just do whatever you want. No, you have guardrails. And these guardrails, David just blew right past and obliterated. There's a saying, the jar of water is only as high as the lowest hole. The jar of water is only as high as the lowest hole. In other words, I like to take that as David could have this amazing life and beautiful jar, like what a faithful man, but it takes this just one hole and that whole jar is useless. It can't hold water. And so life could be splendid in our eyes and everyone says, boy, how do you do it? How do you, your life is great. And everyone says, what a wonderful life he or she must have. But this hidden secret things that we can't keep a boundary control of can destroy us. Third, so she gets pregnant. She returns home, verse 4 and 6. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. How do we know this baby is her? his? Because the writer noted she was just washing herself from her uncleanness. She just had her menstrual cycle, and so she's, she hasn't been pregnant with her husband. And so she says to David, hello, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah hit tight," And Joab sent Uriah to David. Third thing, how did David get there? Instead of, instead of stopping this sin, instead of saying, what have I done? He keeps pulling at this and unraveling his life. Why did he call Uriah to confess, Uriah, I've been unfaithful to you, and it's not your wife's fault. And then God bless them. Let us pray. That's the end of the story. Don't you wish that's how it ended? Why did he call Uriah? Uriah, how's the war going? It's going great. We, we got a firm ground. The Lord is with us. Great, Uriah. Thank you for that report. Hey, why don't you go home and wash your feet? That's what it says. It's a euphemism for Go home and enjoy the pleasure of your wife. You, you earned it. That night, the following morning, David finds Uriah sleeping at the gate. How can I sleep when my men and the Ark of the Covenant is out there in a booth? Do you see the juxtaposition? David is so fallen that Uriah's righteousness, in contrast to David, is just glaringly contrasted. And what does David do? Get him drunk he'll surely sleep with his wife second time. And Uriah is too faithful. He doesn't. So the third thing David does is the most sinister of all. Joab, take Uriah, send him out to the fiercest part of the battle and then withdraw. And Joab does. And David's plan works. And the saddest part is to cover up David's sins instead of facing it David not only has an innocent man Uriah killed, it also says, and so other servants with Uriah also fell. To cover up David's sins, (laughs) other innocent people who had no idea what was going on were sent out for a death battle. And so David's plan works. Verse 26, it ends with this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah heard her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then here's the verse that just smashes you in the face. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, there's a powerful truth here that there is no sin that David, no matter how much you could cover up, you cannot hide your sins from me. And two, that David... God doesn't look at your sins and says, oh, you messed up here. But he looks at your sins and says, I am not pleased with your sins. You know what's scary? Um, Today it sounds like it's like trash David day. But David, verse 25, if you read this chapter, he finds zero remorse. They report to him, Uriah's dead. And then this is David's response. Tell Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage you. I mean, do you know how sick that is? Don't let this get you down. Hey, gird up. This happens in life in war. We die. One dies. People die all the time. Go fight the battle. I never saw that until this reading recently. So what do we do with this? Next week, I'm going to go to chapter 12, and we're going to bring it to, I told our staff, today is like Empire Strikes Back. It ends with Han Solo and Carbonite. So those of you Star Wars nerds, it ends dark, like, okay, not enough Star Wars fans in here. I think there's two things I just want to leave us in a little bit of discomfort. Number one is this. For Christians in this room who are Christians devout, we are called, this is why we are called to repentance and confession daily. This is where Catholic churches do a wonderful job compared to Protestant churches. They have confession as a regular. They have the daily prayer. They go to a prayer booth, and we think it's weird to confess to a priest, and we don't, but why don't we confess daily? Um, What happens when you leave a banana peel under your bed? Just leave it there. I'll pick it up tomorrow. Do you pick it up, you know, liquefies and it gets mooky and sticky? Not that I have experience, or I do. (laughs) But maybe we're called to live in a different way. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Christian, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We're called to live differently. And so when we go into these kind of situations, it's not just simply, well, God will forgive me. No, but God also has an expectation of holiness because your sin doesn't only affect you, does it? Who, was, who are all the people affected by David's sin? Uriah, Bathsheba, her family, soldiers, military, David's kingdom, David's relationship with God. So the question is, are you where you are supposed to be Christian? Are you in a context of community and accountability? Are you before the Lord in his presence every day? Are you living with the mindset that we don't live just a scientific life, but we live a spiritual life? where are you before god what sins have you been hiding and to the non-christian people in here who are like wrestling and i'm not sure if i'm a christian yet we'll leave you with this religion says if you live right god will accept you the gospel of jesus christ says you can't live right but jesus christ lived right and in christ you can be accepted if this story does nothing You need to see that even the great King David cannot maintain a holy life out of his own willpower. He is feeble. We need a savior. You need a savior. We need something greater beyond ourselves to live the life God's called us to. We need to be made whole. Ezekiel 18.4 says a soul whose sins shall die. Sometimes religious people say, So people look at cynics, say this about David. Well, church is full of these hypocrites. Look at David. Even he fell. Look at the pastor. He's a chump. Look at at these Christians in the news. They fail. And I think it's easy, and no one's going to blame you for saying that, but something changed. You're absolutely right. There's no human being you should worship. But two things in the future. In Matthew 12, verse 22, 23, Jesus heals. And this is what the people say of Jesus. Could this be the, they don't say Messiah, they don't say Savior. You know what they say? Could this be the son of David? What? Why would you call the Messiah the title son of David? Something changed. God knew David's sins, and yet a couple hundred years later, the people still refer to David as this terminology, We are waiting for the Messiah, the son of David. What changed? And we'll talk more about this next week, but it is more than a religious activity that changed David. It was the mercy and the love of God that pulled David back into where he was supposed to be. And my encouragement to you all, Christians and non-Christians is, when you confess and come before the Lord, A broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. He will bring our lives back to where it belongs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, may your message ring louder and clearer beyond this morning's worship service as we go home, as we are in the quiet moments as you convict us of our sins that you love us too much to let our lives unravel and god you're not going to condone or excuse david and we see that in the next chapter but god in this moment may you help us to ask this question where are we before you may we not be just simply playing religion and just filling our lives with activities and throwing you just just a token attention. But God, bring our hearts in reverence and fear and conviction back to you and transform us and renew us and to make us a church that is saved not by our willpower or discipline or success, but purely by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ who is the Redeemer for David as well as us. God, seal this message with your promise. We pray this in your son's most holy name who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation,